You're listening to the Art of Move podcast, hosted by Dr. William Raybar and Anthony Manuel, where we attempt to create a grand unified theory of human movement, biomechanics, and training. If you enjoy these episodes, you can watch them streamed live on nofilter.net, where you can interact directly and have all your questions answered in real time. Four, three, two, and one. Welcome to episode 28, I believe, of the Art of Move podcast. My name is Anthony Manuel. I'm here with my good friend, Dr. William Raybar. We're out in the Canadian Rockies trying to find the truth behind human movement in its most natural, pure form, the grand unified theory of human biomechanics. And uh, today we are going to be talking a little bit about some of the most common causes of injury, common uh, causes of pain. Uh, Will is a chiropractor and has seen thousands of patients and has probably seen a lot of similar issues with the clients that he gets in and and can also sort of differentiate between different types of clients, either athletic clients, gen pop clients. Um, I was a personal trainer for over 10 years. I'm not currently active in that profession. I'm working in a different field at the moment, but I have worked with a lot of people and helped them get out of pain. I've unfortunately also been, uh, you know, miseducated and put some clients in pain with uh, the wrong intervention. So I'd like to talk about that a little bit and what I would do differently today, uh, based on the, you know, the the information that we've been talking about so far. Um, but right off the get go, I want to identify just off the top of my head what I think some of the most common areas of pain that I hear people complain about. It's usually neck, shoulders, lower back and maybe sometimes hips as well. And that's, you know, those are really, you know, very generic sort of things. And maybe we can get a little bit more granular with with what people mean when they say shoulders or what people mean when they say neck and what people mean when they say lower back. As a chiropractor, what do you see people come in for most that they're looking for treatment for? Um, So keep in mind that I'm already seeing people in pain most of the time, right? So that makes up the majority of my uh, patients. The thing I see the most is either a cervical spine or low back. Um, Basically, you tweak the joints in your low back. It's called an apophyseal joint. And uh, you get inflammation there. It's not the disc, but it is in the vertebrae. It's what actually Mm. moves it. Okay? Seven out of ten patients who come in have one or the two, either cervical or lumbar uh, inflammation of the joint there. Okay. So, um, when that happens, the muscle spasms surrounding that joint and try to hold it in place. And, um, that's by far the most common problem in the spine. Okay. And what, what would you say, um, like just diagnosing in terms of people's posture or people's activities, what do you see what would cause some sort of, um, will basically cause that to happen within the body? Well, this is interesting after, you know, uh, doing GOTA and looking at the body a little bit differently in terms of front chain versus uh, back chain dominance. So having your hips in front of your shoulders with people with low back pain in general, now that I've seen, uh, you know, hundreds of patients since I had the GOTA mindset, it really comes down to are your hips in front of your shoulders? That causes a lot of compression in the low back. And if you're doing sports on top of that, if you're running, if you're um, doing anything repetitive, you're going to have load on your low back that is unnecessary and causes a lot of joint degeneration and pain in that area. 
I just want for the listeners to to differentiate between the idea of a front chain and a back chain. If you think about, you know, your body in terms of the front and the back, the front where your eyes are, the back and the back of your head, uh, you know, from the top of your head all the way down to your feet, on either one of those sides, you have a kinetic chain of musculature and, and connective tissue. Uh, the back chain is obviously on the back, the front chain is obviously on the front. And if you uh, want to experience what it's like to be back chain dominant versus front chain dominant, well, just stand in a neutral position and lean forward slightly until you almost have to catch yourself with your foot from falling down. That's a back chain dominance. You'll feel your, the whole backside of your body start to tense up. The front side of your body will tense up if you lean backwards. If you push your hips out in front and you lean your head and your shoulders way, way back until you feel like you're about to fall, you'll feel your abs, you'll feel your hip flexors, you'll feel your quads, every, you know, the toes will start to dig in and you're going to feel that front chain uh, trying to keep you in balance. Now, a lot of, you know, day-to-day -day life in Western civilized society, it, it kind of is designed to put you in the front chain if you think about it if you're sitting in chairs you see most people sitting in chairs they're leaning their shoulders back behind their hips uh sitting in a car same thing you're chilling out on the couch my default position to lay down is just to like sprawl out with my hips way way behind my head resting and my you know my chin tucked down with my head resting on something it's very very comfortable but it puts me in a front chain dominant position and, uh, you know, other factors such as weightlifting, where you're doing, say, a deadlifting movement where your hips start traveling from back to front. I mean, I, I, I watched videos of myself deadlifting the other day and I actually saw like pushing my hips past my shoulders. It was literally training my body into this front chain dominance. And um, what happens to a person's spinal structure or posture when they become more front chain dominant, that would uh, that would uh, you know contribute to to some sort of back pain like that. Well, once your hips go in front of your shoulders, your spine is literally getting compressed in that area just from the anatomy. So the joints are coming together, and the joints are going to hold you up at that point. So mm. um, you'll see a lot of this happen with anterior pelvic tilt as well. When someone sticks their butt out. Your joints are coming together in the low back and that's what's holding stable and it is a stable structure however if you're putting too much load on those joints and always relying on them to hold you up instead of your musculature your uh elasticity of the chains of your muscles in the back then you're going to run into issues you're going to run into bony issues and that's what i see the most I find too that the the human body tries to find a natural center of gravity. Like you never want your body ne never actually wants to feel like it's falling backwards or falling forwards. So if your hips are forward, um, what I tend to find happens to compensate is your thoracic spine will start getting kyphotic. It'll start rounding to bring, or you'll get that like forward neck position to kind of bring your center of gravity back to a, a middle ground. And what, you know, aside from just, you know, your, your lower back getting lordotic or, or overextended and compressed, then you're, you develop that sort of hunchback or the, the forward rolled shoulders that, that will also start to contribute, you know, just by being in your front chain, you start to develop this sort of like hunched troll situation, right? And like, you see that when we're sit again, it's, it's seated posture, we will kind of like, We'll lean back, but then we'll hunch forward to kind of get closer to the screen that we're looking at or whatever it happens to be that, you know, that like I'm like, that was my default posture for a long time because I was so front chain dominant. But then you said doing sport on top of that, my sport was CrossFit and powerlifting and weightlifting. And I am still trying to 
unlock my thoracic spine from building musculature in this hyperkyphotic position in my thoracic spine. Well, you hit the nail on the head there. When I look at most people, what they're coming in with is that uh, forward uh, hip and the compensatory thoracic spine where it curves over, right? So hips are forward. And so you can stand up straight. You really bring your thoracic spine forward. The problem is it kind of crushes your organs. It makes that area shorter. Okay, so you elongate in the back and shorten in the front. Over a period of time, that's more pressure on the organs and your front chain is literally kind of crushing. And at the same time, it's taking pressure, right? Because of the mm. way you're standing. Um, now, there was also resting postures. This was the biggest thing for me. I always rested in front chain. And uh, this is the biggest mistake you can make. You want to switch that right away. Rest in your back chain spend way more time in your back chain than your front chain. And this includes having your hip behind your rib cage. Okay. So even when I'm in child pose, my hips always stay behind my rib cage. That is the number one goal. And when you think about it like that, it becomes easier to know what you're doing. As long as your hips are behind your rib cage, you're in good territory. Now you can have a small amount of time in the front chain to stretch things out and to rest but you want to make it a lower and lower amount of time till it's about 2%. Yeah. Cause some of, some of your, um, some of your time and some of your body is meant to like, you wouldn't have a front chain if you didn't use it. Right. Uh, there is, there is a function to it. Um, that said, if you think about front chain versus back chain, if you activate the back chain by leaning forward and you activate the front chain by leaning backwards, the more you lean forward, the more forward movement you're encouraging. Again, like if you lean forward far enough, eventually you're going to catch yourself by putting your leg forward. We're forward locomotive creatures. Our, our eyes are on the front of our head. We are designed to move forward ahead, not side to side like a crab. You know, like we're, that's that's sort of our body's design. So that is, you know, we want to spend as much time as possible. Even when we're doing these podcasts now, I used to do them in the chair. And even though I was sitting, you can, you can be back chain dominant in a chair to an extent, right? Like now when I'm sitting in a chair, if I'm having dinner with my partner or something, I'll sit closer to the edge of the chair and I'll tuck my feet underneath the chair a little bit. And I'll try to, you know, cross my ankles over. I'll keep that inside ankle bone high position and I'll just tilt my ribs as far over my hips as I can and elongate my spine while I'm sitting. I never use that, that backrest anymore to sit in my chair. Um, you can, you can at least, you know, even if your hips are still kind of being compressed in that position, you can at least get into a back chain dominant position in the chair. And as we're doing these podcasts now, you know, I'm standing on a slant board and I'm just making sure that my hips are just a little bit behind and we can, we can podcast for like an hour and a half and I can just stand here, you know, I'll, I'll I shift a lot, but I'm still, you know, I can still stand here comfortably for an hour and a half in my back chain. Yeah. Um, I, I switch positions all the time. I'm going from a slant board to a, um, seated kneeling position. I just switch it up all the time. Right. And then mm. sometimes I find myself in front chain because I'm so used to it. I'll subconsciously go there and then I try to make a better move, have a better behavior. Right. So, um, one of the things in the, that I see for therapists is literally the front chain versus the back chain. Everybody is looking at the tilt of the pelvis. The tilt of the pelvis is still what everyone's looking at. The side view assessment tilt. Is it an anterior tilt? Is it a posterior tilt? 
you're missing the front and the back, the shift forward of the hip. That supersedes mm. the tilts, okay? So it doesn't matter what tilt you have. If your hip is shoved way forward, you're going to have issues. And I see this all over for assessments for slow motion running. I see this for um, assessments all over the physiotherapist, chiropractic world, sports medicine. It's all about the tilt of the pelvis when it isn't all about the tilt of the pelvis. Um, there's way more to it. The pelvis actually in movement, it becomes more of like a, a swivel motion, a, a smooth overhand motion if it is working properly. Yeah. But for the standard easy assessment, you want to see are your hips in front of your shoulders? If they are, you want to get them slightly behind them. Yeah, that, that easy assessment you showed me the other day when we were hanging out, you, you just put a broomstick next to my hips. And then, you, you know, you, you took that same broomstick and you put it on my shoulders. It's like, look, here's, here's the line that your shoulders are making to the ground. It's obviously in front of your hips or it's obviously behind your hips or it's at your hips. It's, you know, like it's a very, very easy assessment to just kind of like be like, all right, here's, here's your line. Where is it compared to your hips? And now I want to talk a little bit about the consequences physiologically of staying in this front chain position. If that's like, you know, posturally, that's a low hanging fruit for people to kind of get out of back pain because that's what's causing some of that lumbar compression. That's what's causing some of that uh, kyphosis in the thoracic spine. Like what, what happens long-term on a tissue level, let's say, because you know, a lot of the stuff that you end up doing is, is some, some manual release therapy. You do your cupping machine, you do movement therapy as well. Um, and I know that, you know, one of the things that you'll do is you'll do some, some myofascial release and then you'll move to, to basically teach the, the nervous system that it's safe to be in these positions. Over time, what's happening to the, on a tissue and a nervous system level and how would you address that at that point? Um, well, what's happening there is you're temporarily lengthening the tissue and you're like in terms of cupping, I'm driving blood in there myofascial release, I'm getting into deep tissue, stimulating it, uh, sometimes relaxing it, sometimes stimulating it, depends what I'm doing. And then I'll take that area that I just relaxed or drove blood into and I'll move it gently, okay? And it'll give me more range of motion than I normally have. That new range of motion is the new territory that your nervous system hasn't seen. And that's what you can drive into the system. It's a new road, I guess you can say. The nervous system is building a new road to that motion and your tissues will build on top of that. So now you'll have that tissue resilience in a new range of motion. This is what ATG is trying to do. This is what a lot of the systems are trying to do is to lengthen the tissues. I just think there's uh, faster ways to go about it than others. I don't think it's always just strength training to the end range. Um, sometimes right. it is, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, the the issue too, I guess, is if you're if you're – strength training to the end range but you're still creating structural issues like you said that that compressed lumbar spine is not a tissue issue that's a structure issue right a tissue issue that's funny um yeah it's a structure issue like if you're if your lumbar joints are literally like hyper compressed because you're overextended because you know because you're 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 basically crunching them like you can lengthen your the tissues around that area all you want if you're still front chain dominant, you're still compressing your lumbar spine, you're still going to experience back pain. And some tissues, and this happens actually quite a bit, they're tight because your nervous system is making them tight. Um, and over a period of time, they mechanically become tight. You can't just lift your way out of this problem or stretch your way out of this problem. You have to 
feed your nervous system inputs that'll relax the area and then you move it in that relaxed state. This is what a lot of the lifting is missing where you're going to end range and just going as hard as you can. It's still that same type of energy where you're compressing and making your nervous system go as hard as it can. Sometimes it needs to relax and you move it afterwards. Now on another level, since I've been doing this for a while, I can get into an area, let's say my low back, I can really get in deep and then I can move it gently. And then because I've done it so much and I have control there, I can amp it up to a point where I might go for an aggressive run or, or do something mm. more aggressive because that's my workout in itself. And then because you're, yeah. And if someone else is doing that from, you know, they're, they're going, they're jumping into the hard workout and maybe they've done some myofascial release, but they're jumping back into these, these same, you know, structural patterns, they're, they're still going to run into the same issues, right? So when you're working with clients, do you try to educate them on, on like the front versus back chain dominance thing? Do you give them behavioral changes to try and focus on outside of the clinic as well? Yeah, I, I repeat butt behind rib cage a lot. I get almost everybody to feel that motion, like what it feels like with your eyes closed, shift your hips back. This is what it should feel like. And it is a foreign concept to a lot of people. Um, and you have to kind of sell the importance of it right off the get-go. It's bringing it into somebody's world right away. So they're like, this is a, another piece of advice like I got from the last five chiropractors I went to and, and physio, right? So in terms of working with patients, you have to build a rapport. And But for me, I'm really convinced myself that this is such low-hanging fruit and something anybody can put in their life right away as long as you look at it more like a behavior change versus an exercise. It's like, no, everything you do is going to be behind your rib cage. And if you need to jump or need to go backwards or lift weights, your hips are going to be accelerating past that point. You're going to be going into your front chain. Try not to do that too much and try to promote the back chain, especially when you're resting. Mm. So that's, you know, that's a lower back issue, just low hanging fruit that you can, and, and you know, I, I've noticed too, that even no matter how much stretching or how many Jefferson curls I did, I still found that I did feel back tightness throughout the day, especially if I was standing a lot. Um, and I just haven't since adopting the back chain dominant position, resting in the back chain, lot, standing, walking, uh, freeing up a lot of the musculature and, and practicing some of these spiral dynamic locomotive patterns that we've talked about in previous episodes. Um, but that said, are there other common examples like that's the low hanging fruit, but are there other common behavioral patterns or, or even, uh, exercise tendencies that people have that put them in lower back pain that you see frequently? Yeah. Another frequent, okay. There's, there's three things that happen the most. One is what I described an injury to the joint of the back. And then there's an injury to the muscles or ligaments of the back. That's probably the next most common. And usually that happens with lifting or, um, something a little bit more violent where you're flexing forward fast, things like that, right? You're playing a sport, you cut really fast and you, and you feel your low back. Um, that happens quite often. And then there's the ner nervous system issues and that'll usually manifest. Something will feel like it's going down your legs, numbness, tingling, pain. This is a little bit more serious, especially if it goes past your knee. Okay. Mm -hmm. So when you're feeling numbness, tingling or pain past your knee, that's when I go see a professional, um, and you can see it otherwise, see one otherwise as well, but that's when it's really a red flag.
And when you do see that red flag, you should just kind of go see a professional right away. Or are there things that they can do would, in the interim to, to kind of alleviate or, or, or mitigate some of the, the potential damage between the time that that happens and the, and the time that they see the therapist? Yeah, um, a lot of times it'll be inflammatory. So the damage is kind of already, the damage in terms of what you're feeling with pain is already happening. Uh, the thing that I do when someone comes into the office with a nervous system issue that's hot, it's like you can't touch it. Anything you do, any movement, it's just going to hurt. We have to find positions of relief. Sometimes that'll only be three, four, five positions over a period of an hour working intricately with how to like moving the pelvis in different positions to get temporary pain or pain relief. So you can cycle through those uh, positions of pain relief so that the, it gives time for your body to naturally chill out a little bit. Because mm. right off the get-go, a nervous system issue, you, you get it, like, for the most part, you start touching it, it gets worse, right? Yeah. So that's right off the get-go. So would you say, like, first order of priority would be just try to lower the inflammation? We're talking uh, a back injury on a level of tissue damage or joint damage. You want to, like, you want to reduce inflammation as fast as possible. Yeah, I wouldn't say so much reduce inflammation anymore. I like flushing inflammation through an area if possible. Okay, okay so um, if you can, and, and this goes a little bit away from the nervous system issue, but in general, if you have inflammation, I like to get inflammation flowing through. So gentle movements with whatever you can do in the area, gentle massage, and um, often, move often, okay? So... That's the advice for like a general tendonitis or tendon that's inflamed. And that happens a lot in the body. Um, back to the actual nervous system issue. Yeah, when a, nerve, when a nerve is inflamed, it is insanely painful. Someone will get constant pain radiating, nothing you can do to stop it. The only thing you can do is relieve pressure on, let's say it's a disc bulge. All you can do is relieve pressure on that bulge and hope the, the bulge doesn't push against the nerve anymore and relaxes a little bit. Okay. So that again, goes back to the movements. I want to move very specifically. And if somebody already knows how to control their pelvis, control their low back, it goes way smoother. Trying to teach somebody how to move and feel their body when they're already in pain is like very hard to do. Right. So somebody who already knows their body has a major advantage right off the get go. So, Knowing how to move your pelvis and where it is in space is one of the best things you can do overall for your body going mm. forward. Okay. And that's actually fairly simple to do. So learning to articulate your joints before you're in pain is probably a good thing. <laughs> and I mean, like even, even learning how to tilt your pelvis, for example, when we're talking about lower back pain, if you can, the more you articulate a joint, the more synovial fluid that you're bringing to the area, the more blood flow you get to it. Generally speaking, you know, especially because joints don't get the same blood flow that muscles do, right? Joint, like joints in general don't have that same uh, level of fluid dynamics that, that, you know, a muscle can have when it gets a pump for you. It's hard to get, you don't get a pump in your joints necessarily. Well, right? you kind of do. Yeah. You get, you get synovial fluid flushed through your joint with compressive motions and, and motions within the joint, right? So right. you do kind of get fluid shoved in there, kind of like motor oil, right? And the more of the joint you can access, the more it's going to be lubricated in the area that you access. 
goes the theory, right? So, um, yeah, uh, moving your articulations, moving your joints very specifically and very gently once a day is a very good idea. Once, twice a day. Functional range conditioning, of course, does this as a, a practice, right? But if you can just learn to move your pelvis, what the tilts feel like in different planes of motion. So if your hips are behind you, try to tilt your pelvis to the right, tilt it to the left, tilt it back, tilt it forward, and just close your eyes and feel what it's like to move in each direction and really nail that down and have that feeling in your head because you're going to want to keep that for life. You can do a lot of... Uh, tensioning from that area i almost look at that area as like a spool or a, a pulley mm. right because you can tilt it and have different tensions going from the top of your body to the bottom of your body depending on where the angle is right don't forget the biggest muscles in your body are attaching there and you can play with the how tense it is by just tilting it back and forth and uh, how it is backwards how far it is forwards so the, the the strategy that you described of you know constant movements in pain free ranges and trying to you know get some some gentle massage and, and and you know tissue work that's that's not in pain essentially that's the strategy I've really taken in terms of recovering from my shoulder surgery I'm five weeks uh, post operative uh, I have really decent range in my shoulder for you know having basically had my uh, it wasn't my, it was my supraspinatus was shaved down a little bit and um, my labrum had to be repaired. Um, and, you know, I have, I have really great range in it right now because I've been moving in pain-free ranges and I've been moving in ranges. You know, we, I, it's funny, I listened back today on our, uh, on a walk that I went on, on our episode on shoulder mechanics. And I've been thinking about how this bowing and cornering action of the shoulder has been how I've approached trying to move my shoulder. You know, I've been doing like sort of slow articulation, uppercuts and slow, uh, you know, jabbing, punching movements and articulating in, in relation to the rest of my body. I've been doing a lot less uh, just, you know, static body FRC style rotations and trying to like just move the joints as much as I can. And I'm trying to move it in relation to the rest of my body. And I found once I started doing that versus just the, the static articulations that my recovery was accelerating quite a bit. And I wanted to talk about shoulder injuries as well, because, you know, they're, they're common, I find in the lifting community, especially, do you get a lot of shoulder pain or shoulder injury clients? Uh, yeah, tons. Um, I work with shoulders every single day. Is there a specific question you have with it or? Um... Yeah, um, what, what do you see causing, well, first of all, what aspect of sh the, the shoulder tends to be injured the most? What do you see in terms of shoulder pain or shoulder injury? What do you see people coming in with the most? Um, well, let's, I'm, I'm gonna back up and say why it gets injured in general, because it, it really makes a difference on how you look at it. So, um, in general, people don't have control of where the ball is inside the socket, okay? And usually with just, you know, coming forward and, and being on your computer, the tissue brings the ball forward inside the socket. You have a hood on top that's a bony hood. You can feel it if you just tap your shoulder. Basically, the ball pinches the top of that uh, bony bridge at the top called the acromion. But underneath, you're, you have soft tissues, your rotator cuff muscles, um, ligaments, your shoulder capsule, 
and it gets pushed up against that bone and rubs and rubs and rubs. And the problem is a lot of people don't have great range of motion in their shoulders to begin with. But if you're going to the gym, you just want to push your shoulder, your arms overhead. So three quarters of the people doing overhead presses or shoulder presses wouldn't be able to do a shoulder press unweighted and just put their hands over their head hmm. and have no control of the ball and socket. So it's kind of like when you look at it like that, it's a little bit wild to be just doing arbitrary movements, thinking you have full range of motion when you don't. So that happens a lot and people injure their shoulders quite frequently um, in the gym. I find that even more than low back or anything else. It's a lot of shoulder injuries happen directly in the gym. And that's why it's you're literally crushing your tissues in there. A way better strategy for shoulders, like because the primary function isn't to lift something straight up for the most part. No. Um, it is to grasp things like most of the day you're trying to reach at something, reach behind you, uh, you know, do things like that. That'll be 90% of what most people do. So mm. even restoring just the feeling of where the ball is inside the socket by doing, you know, basic back and forth motions, internal to external. You can see right now I'm spinning my uh, bone inside the socket, just back and forth gently and just reaching forward, right? Like kind of like you're corkscrewing a punch. That in itself, doing that for like 50 reps a day mindfully is going to get you way more than anything else. Okay, so like that is just easy to do. Spin the joint inside the socket and feel the uh, last little bit of your ranges of motion and work with that gently. I find to thinking about the biological base, like you said, the, the the primary function of the the shoulder in human beings is to reach and grasp for things, to reach out and grab things. There's a lot of theories that uh, you know what sort of separated human beings evolutionarily from other primates is our ability to throw things. Like if you look at other great apes in nature, they they can't throw for shit. <laughs> you know the the stereotype of a monkey throwing its shit. Well, they they suck at throwing. They don't have the the shoulder structure to actually throw things. Uh, but human beings, we have this you know this elastic capacity, and if you you know. We've, we've actually done slow motion breakdowns of different uh, baseball pitchers and things. You've talked about the elasticity of the pack being, a, you know, a primary sort of function of the ability to throw. And throwing is not something like if you think about the the mechanics of throwing versus the mechanics of just lifting a bar straight over your head, they're two totally different things, right? Um, I actually wanted to ask because. If you were to order like the top five or even top three functions of the shoulder, what would they be? Um, in terms of anatomical or in terms of actual function, I'd say grasping, throwing, um, and bracing can be one of them. Maybe I haven't thought about a top three, but you know, right. bracing a ball or you know, feeling in a closed chain position, basically your hand being against something. Okay. Um, whether that be a push-up position, uh, you know, it could be a child rocker, anything, right? Mm. I'd say that's another function is to stop yourself from something. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, it's it's funny because my my thought was uh, brachiation or climbing um, okay. for for like a you know a top three function. Oh, I can um, buy that for sure. Yeah, and and you know. I think you know. I think in terms of, I try to imagine like early hominids or early human beings um, existing in a hunter-gatherer capacity. What we would be doing is like we'd be, you know, probably grappling each other. We'd be throwing things to try and hunt. Maybe we'd be climbing a tree to find honey. 
or fruit or, or something along those lines. I can, I can really picture, you know, human beings don't have the same level of brachiation that great apes do. You know, a lot of apes are way better at brachiation than we are, but we still have, you know, even our shoulder structure has the ability to brachiate and a lot of shoulder pain in a lot of lifters. I've heard reports of people doing, you know, extensive hanging work, just passive and active hangs. And a lot of their shoulder issues start to not be resolved necessarily, but they start to go away. They, they, like the pain levels go way down. Well, well, shoulder issues are not just one thing, right? There could be a lot of different issues. Lifters will present with their own problems. A lot of it is tight musculature around the uh, joint pulling on that ball, right? So you have a tighter ball and socket with most lifters because the muscles are pulling, 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 right? At that area. So maybe, you know, hanging and having that stretch of the muscle might give a little bit of a freedom for the joint in motion. I'm just giving a little bit of a theory there, right? Yeah. But not every, uh, not every shoulder issue is going to be the same. There's different reasons for pain. Um, again, the most common one I see is lack of control of the ball inside the socket, which is the first place I go for anybody to have a better shoulder is to understand how the ball rotates in the socket, then treat it like a, a shoulder. For me, I would learn basic crawling patterns to rehab, but not everyone's going to want to do that. So just an easy punch forward twisting as far as you can, letting that ball feel like it's kind of like sucking out of the socket as you're corkscrewing your arm. So your pinky thought pinky side is up mm -hmm. and then you're pulling the shoulder back and repeating. Okay. So rotating as much as you can at the actual ball and socket in the shoulder. Yeah. And that's, that's shoulder issues, right? And that's, you know, again, kind of close to my heart right now because I jacked my shoulder up so bad doing CrossFit. Um, I heard it during a snatch for those who are wondering. I was, uh, I, I, I don't know at what point in the movement it happened. I felt it when I caught the weight overhead um, and I was very fatigued from doing other movements. I have had, you know, like I, because I was a power lifter and I have a power lifting background, the one thing that other CrossFit athletes noticed was that my pecs were always super tight and I always had that sort of forward movement. So my, my snatch mobility to, to open up the shoulders and actually get that external rotation overhead to catch the snatch was always super, super limited for me. And I just tried, you know, I just would, you know, I'd warm up a little bit and then I would just push through anyway. And I, and anyway, I ended up jacking up my, uh, my labrum and that was sort of what, what sent me on my journey to explore different uh, movement pattern modalities like Goto, like functional patterns. Um, that's how I got into ATG as well. And even FRC, kind of more legitimately it was I just kind of looked at these other paths you know these these systems that were trying to you know offer a better way to move that wouldn't lead to injury chronically yeah um some more shoulder issues that I see like a labrum uh you don't see them that often and they usually manifest like you can't move past a certain range of motion because you're literally stuck okay those are more like a labral issue is kind of like a meniscus to me where um, it's getting stuck on a, on a flap. Your, your ball and socket is literally getting stuck on a flap. And that's the type of pain you'll feel. You'll feel a stuck type of pain and a grinding. Okay, that's a little bit more serious. You'll probably need a, a lot of people go for surgeries with that one. Let's just put it that way because it is a very structural type of issue. 
Um, a labrum is a deepening of the socket. It's like having an extra su suction cup around the rim of the socket. So the ball inserts in the suction cup and has a little bit more stability, right? Because your, your shoulder, uh, you're trading the stability you, you have for, for being able to reach everywhere, right? So there has to be enough motion in there, but at the same time, you have to be able to hold it. And that's what the labrum does. So once that goes, it becomes more of a stability issue. I have that in my hip right now. I've been able to mitigate the problems using Gota for the first time. And keep in mind, I'm a professional at this and I have like next level understanding of what it feels like in there, but I didn't solve it until I had inside ankle bone high because my ankle bone was super low and I can never get the femur in that right position to have mm. it to have it in the right position in the socket and to have that smooth motion of my pelvis because I was already ankle bone low and I couldn't do anything about it at ground level. Okay. So once I solved that, I solved quite a bit of an issue. Um, however, it's, it's still, uh, you know, it's, it's healing slowly, let's say, right. It's yeah. a labral tear that I had for three years. It was a violent tear from a ski, like flying out to the side at 60, 70 kilometers an hour. So it's not something that happened repetitively. Well, this is um, what you, the way you just described that too. I was thinking about the sort of paradigm shift in thinking that I've experienced since we started doing this podcast and we started exploring these different ideas. Uh, I used to think in terms of joint by joint. I would think in terms of the musculature, the tendons and the ligaments and the structure. I was very structure oriented, right? And I would think on a joint by joint basis. In fact, when we started this podcast, we tried to go joint by joint, but then we eventually moved to talking about patterns and what secure patterns happen and transference of energy within these patterns because we're, we're talking about movement. We're not talking about just the structure. We're talking about movement. So, we, you know, we would try to talk on a joint by joint basis, but then we would talk about the whole structure and we would talk about the actual patterns that would produce structural stability. And then we would talk about the structure after the fact when we're talking in the context of the movement patterns, right? So as opposed to just looking at just the structure and trying to deduce how it should move from that, we were talking about the patterns that we observed that, you know, demonstrated durability and then looked at the structure, what was happening structurally after that, right? So, you know, it, it, it's one of the, one of the things that's, that's funny with that mentality when we're talking about like, okay, well, what's happening at the lower back? Well, we talked about front chain versus back chain dominance. We're, you know, we're not talking about the, the muscles and the structures of the lower back at all. We're talking about like the entire structure in terms of how it's moving in space and its ability to move in space and, and how misalignment will create these structural imbalances that will create, you know, poor movement patterns. Um, let's, let's talk about hips for a second because you do have the labral tear. I experienced so many issues with my hips and I've thrown every mobility exercise at my hips possible. Um, you know, cause I was, you know, deadlifting 500 pounds and squatting 450 pounds and doing all kinds of crazy shit and putting so much loading on my hips in, you know, the frontal and sagittal plane only. And, uh, when you see hip problems structurally, what does that usually show you about someone's, what do you look for in terms of structure and movement? Yeah, you really have to look at it uh, in motion to know how somebody's moving. You'll get clues like in the office, I can do passive range of motion. I can see just like, I, sometimes I do get them to squat up and down just to see what their behavior will be because I started doing those assessments. And you do get a lot of info from just watching somebody squat. 
it'll mm-hmm. show you how tight they are, where they impinge, if they have good control of their hips. That That is still a useful thing, right? But to really see what's going on, you have to watch somebody in slow motion, front, back, side view, and really see it frame by frame. Now, if somebody's laying on the table in front of me, usually what I'll do is I'll have them lay down and in general just see if, like, just feel around and see if everything's balanced, okay? I usually go into the uh, spinal erectors and the QLs first, like the area between the last rib and the top of your pelvis. And I'll feel the tension in there. And I can tell a lot about a person, what they do with the tensions inside there. If they're ultra sensitive, if they, um, if it's so tense that it can't let go, um, rarely it'll feel good. And I'll be like, what are you doing? You know something, right? Because a lot of people with just life and not knowing how to take care of that area have issues right there. So the pelvis is already in a state of um, being blocked neurologically. You're not feeling safe to move it in multiple planes of motion at speed because you'll get injured if you do when you're bound up, right? So um, I get a good idea of what's going on with a person. And this is lucky I'm a therapist. I can actually touch and uh, to see how bound up somebody is, right? Nervous mm-hmm. system, um, behavior, even just like a standing assessment, seeing how someone's carrying their posture. I can see if they're in their columns, if they're, you know, if their ankles and knees, hips are aligned, I can see where they are in front of their, like, are your hips in front of your ribs or vice versa. I can kind of see the curves of the back and see where the tensions of the muscles are um, and, and fascia, of course. Uh, and I get to take a history, right? So that's huge there. Ask the right questions. Um, this is more on a professional level. You have to ask the right questions to get to the root of somebody's problem, right? So that's huge there, spending a little bit more time on the history and, and understanding somebody. But a lot of times it's pretty simple. And since I'm working with pain and getting rid of pain, it's like eight out of 10 times somebody describes it and within 30 seconds, I know what it is. Just from experience, right? And then the 20% of cases, it's like, oh, I got to dig in a little bit deeper and really get into the cause, depending if someone's coming in for pain or for, I want to be optimized because they're two different things, right? What, what are some movement patterns or behaviors that people do on a daily basis that could lead them, that, that, that people can look out for? Maybe people are experiencing pain right now and they're doing these daily behaviors that are, that are leading to these, these, you know, these pain patterns. What, what are those that people can look out for that they can you know, make instant changes to? Like I said, the biggest thing is the resting postures. Um, not just sitting for long periods of time, that is your body shutting down. You are getting good at sitting. You're getting really good at sitting. If you, for the most office workers, like people who are, you know, on their computers all day, your body is literally shutting down and getting used to that position. So if you can spend just a little bit more time, um, slant boards, stand on slant boards, stand in a bow and corner, um, cowboy position, size position. I mean, we should put up a series on these, but basically switching positions that are back chain dominant throughout the day instead of just sitting is going to be huge for the, uh, you know, the general population, massive. It could be the biggest thing to do. Then, you know, if you're standing, if you're sitting in front chain, if you had your muscles and your body and your nervous system shut down all day, and then you go to the gym for an hour and expect to reverse everything you've done throughout the day, it just doesn't happen like that. You're likely exercising in poor positions, causing more long-term damage, it may like, you know, I I shouldn't say that. That's a generalization, but chances are 
in a given exercise, if you were in bad position all day, you're going to have a hard time understanding good position during an exercise or even obtaining that position. Mm. So resting posture, daily behavior patterns. Um, like you said, the one thing that I want people to kind of like take from that too is that everything that you do is an input for your body, right? Like you're training your body at, at, with, with everything. We've said this before. Everything you do is training. You said if you're sitting all day, you're, you're training your body to be really good at sitting. If you think about what muscles, again, we're talking about the activation of certain parts of your kinetic chain. If you're sitting in a chair and you're leaning back, well, then your the support muscles are, are principally in your front chain. Your hip flexors are compressed, and eventually that structure, both you know, e either neurologically or structurally, it will eventually adapt to that position, which when you translate that to movement, well, you know, now you're glued up in your hip flexors and you're compressed and your spine is doing all kinds of funky stuff. Well, think about that position in like very specifically. If I'm leaning back in my chair, imagine just doing a sit-up where you go maybe three or four inches down from vertical, you're going to feel your hip flexors just light up, right? You're doing that at a low level all day and then expecting mm. to move them like elastics afterwards. You can't do that. It just doesn't switch like that. Your nervous system has kept them at a low tone. Kind of like the analogy I like to say is, Imagine flexing your arms for two weeks straight and then trying to let your arms relax. Mm. You'd be walking around like you're flexing your arms. The same thing happens in other parts of your body, but they're harder to recognize. Happens a lot in the low back. People carry tension there, shoulders, traps, uh, arms quite a bit, um, hip flexors especially, right? So um, I see that as a big hip flexor type of issue, way too much neurological tension in that area, not so much a length issue. Everyone tries yeah. to stretch things out to as the cure, but that's not, often it's not the case. Most of the times it's not. And that's the hammer everybody has. I think. So you're, you're saying it's less of a structural issue. It's not like an actual physical length of the hip flexors. It's more neurological holding pattern. It could be over time a length issue. If you do that enough, if you hold yourself tense, mm -hmm. you don't just get length. Okay. Yeah. So, um, a lot of people are hybriding them now. I know range of strength does it, uh, ATG does it, where you're getting strength with length, right? Yeah. I like this as a way better uh, model than anything else, right? Than you know, just pumping up your muscle and getting bigger muscles. It, it's much more intelligent way to train your tissues, and it, it would be good on you know, like a. It, it's good because you can progress it really easily, progress and regress really easily. The only thing that's missing there in my mind is joint angles, having the right yeah. joint positioning and making your tissues adapt to the right joint angles and having them, it's a behavior thing, right? Like I want to land inside ankle bone high when I'm spinning and landing in a perfect boat, you know, like that takes a lot of neurological demand and uh, it's not just about tissues anymore. It's about getting the right angles and making your tissues adapt to those right angles first. Well, you're talking about a stop the bleeding approach. You're talking about literally changing the behaviors that stop the issue in the first place versus doing a long lunge to lengthen and strengthen your hip flexor is a reactive approach to a problem that's, you know, ongoing. Like you're, you're, you're always putting, you're basically, you're, you're, you're putting in counter inputs to sort of counteract these bad inputs that you have on a daily basis. Why don't you just change the bad inputs that you have on a daily basis first? 
And then if you want to have extra range for what, you know, whatever your goals are athletically or, or, you know, recreationally, then, then, then do that. Yeah. In terms of tensegrity, getting range itself isn't necessarily a good thing because you're changing the tensegrity of your body. Now, in general, if you can reintegrate the tensegrity after you lengthen and uh, integrate, then that's the way to do it, right? So you want to be long, you want to be able to coordinate parts of your body and you want it to be elastic. But a lot of times people miss the coordinating the body part, make it elastic part and only do the tissue lengthening part. Right. So, so this is interesting because this is, you know, that's Naudi Aguilar's big argument against why yoga sucks so much is that, you know, you're, you're making parts of your body lax that need to have structural tension in order to create this tensegrity structure, uh, tensegrity structure. That's, um, that's an, uh, who, 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 I can't remember where the term Buck came Buck, from. I think Buckminster Fuller, I think Buckminster Fuller. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, he, he, he used it in terms of creating actual like building structures, right? It was an architectural term. And it's this idea that like within tension, you know, these, these counter tensional forces is creating structural stability. That's, that's basically the idea. So if you, if you create laxity in, in certain tissues, then you're not creating stability in the rest of your structure and your structure is going to, you know, eventually fall apart. Um, I'm very curious about this idea of, you know, with, with yoga, yes, you do see a lot of hyper lax structure because a lot of it is deep breathing and relaxation work versus an approach like an ATG or a range of strength is creating strength in these end ranges. Um, the element that you're suggesting I'm hearing is that they're missing the element of elastic quality in fascial tissue. Like if you're just chronically stretching out your fascial tissue, you're chronically stretching out, even if you're building tendinal thickness or tissue resilience in these end ranges, the elastic structure, that rebounding behavior of these tissues is, is fundamental to a tensegrity structure within the body. Is that right? I think you have to teach the tensegrity again. If you re-lengthen something, whether it be positive or negative, you have to reteach your body where that length is. And that's nowhere to be found that I found in like ATG or anything like that. Maybe that's not even their goal. I don't think it is their goal at all, right? But I think as a mover, if you want to transfer it into movement, that's what you have to do. Understand where you are in space. Now, adding in the more complex patterns of understanding how to use the spinal engine and use the infinity patterns to make smooth transitions between motions. Okay. That's the difference. Very smooth transitions between motions. If you're only training length, you're going to be blocky in your motions, in my opinion. That's what I see. Okay. So like that's, that's what happening there. And that, that can only be found with understanding that the spine is an engine and it is supposed to go wave back and forth your movements will be start becoming more circular and more smooth. Okay. But if you don't understand that you're going to be blocky and maybe fast in a straight line. That's my opinion. And and when you say smooth movement, the way that I started visualizing it, I know it's like a, a minor difference in the language we're using, but I think in terms of an efficient transfer of energy, I think of when I was thinking more of in a brace, the core model, and I tried to keep my, whole body as rigid as possible to produce force to produce you know like power uh every step that i took 
my body had to absorb that force versus now when I'm thinking in terms of efficient transfer of energy, I'm rolling the force off these, these curves and, and, you know, creating these spirals and this elastic release, storing and releasing energy in an efficient way so that my body doesn't absorb force through my tissues. That's what I think. When you say smooth transition, I think efficient transfer of energy. It's not absorbing the force. It's not having this blunt sort of impact on your joints. Um, I want to quickly pivot because we had a few questions that I said I'd answer on this episode since you mentioned the infinity patterns. We have, uh, I posted something on my Instagram. If you guys are listening on iTunes or Spotify, you can follow me at the body moves on Instagram. You can follow Will at the art of move. Uh, and I'll be posting questions that you can, uh, you can ask your own questions. We'll answer them. You can also come on nofilter.net and watch these episodes live where you can ask us in real time in the live chat, or you can hit the knock button. You can actually join the stream and have a conversation with us in real time. We'll, we'll, we'll bring you onto the stream and you'll be part of the podcast. But I had three interesting questions that I wanted to ask you. I answered them myself, but I wanted to discuss them as well. Uh, first question, if you had to choose only one exercise to do every day for the rest of your life, what is it? Personally, I would do the bow and different variations in the bow. Um, that's not for everybody though. Um, some people would need to regress and, you know, do child rockers or something like that as their one exercise. But for me, it's the bow. And when you say the bow, is there like a position that you'd be in that you would apply it in? Um, is like, would you do a double bow, a split stance bow, like a drop in? Like what, what's your, what's your go-to? Well, I, I mean, uh, depends how many variations I'm allowed. If I'm allowed only one variation, it's going to be in a single leg posture, butt back, slightly turned in towards the back leg, uh, feeling the tension right at the glute and, uh, really sinking into it inside ankle bone high head over foot. I would do that, that exercise there. Nice. I said, um, you know, I would either do a go to drop in cause I freaking love them and they feel great. But I said, um, an underhand figure eight pattern with a rope, uh, yeah. and, and, and probably in a locomotive way where it's like a, a walking underhand figure eight. If I'm allowed to do that, I know that's a compositive movement, but we can call that an <laughs> exercise cause it's a pattern, right? The reason that I like that so much is that it taught me the figure eight pattern in the shoulders in relationship to the hips. When I started adding the locomotion element, um, that underhand, not specifically the underhand pattern, it, it taught me coordination of that sort of rotating action, counter rotating action of the hip and shoulders that is so signature of the spinal engine that we've talked about so much. And it really taught me how to you know, coordinate that side bending movement in locomotion that I, I, to the point where now when I walk, it kind of almost feels like I'm roping without a rope in my hand. It has that, uh, that feedback for me to feel where I am in space. And it taught me that good spinal waving behavior. I should have got more creative with my exercises and hybrid, you know, did hybrids. I would do, you know, uh, a same thing, underhand rope pattern in the bow right? Because that spinal engine is so important. It feels so damn good once you get it. And it's such a simple pattern. And it's something that you can do for two minutes and your back feels loose afterwards. You've moved multiple tissues. It's super gentle. It's You could do it like an 80-year-old can do it. A five-year-old can do it. And then once you get it, you can go into different patterns and it becomes really, really fun. 
However, a lot of I think a lot of people look at it like, oh, he's skipping, right? But it's it's a lot more than that. You're playing with the energy and transfer of your body, and the rope shows you right in front of your face if you're smooth or not. If you're not smooth, you'll see it in the rope. So yeah, I think it's brilliant. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's that's why I chose it too. Again, it's that feedback that kind of teaches you the pattern. And if you do it enough, it's, it's, you know, it's coding it into your nervous system, right? So the, the, the next question was less about us. And, uh, and this person asked, are there a few moves that make up the bulk of what you prescribe to clients? If so, what are they? And, you know, I answered that I'm not working as a coach right now. And so I'm not prescribing anything to anyone. Right. But you see patients on a regular basis and you're probably prescribing different movements. I know what I would personally do now if I was helping people out. Um, but what would you are there? Is there a bulk of patterns that you sort of prescribe to your clients? And if so, what are they? Yeah, it really depends on uh, what they're coming in for and the pain that they're experiencing. But what I do for everybody or almost everybody is to uh, how to feel each part of the spine and how to move it independently so that you can feel that area. And it becomes so much easier to cue somebody after that. On top of that, I'll get them to just stand in a bow, a double bow with their butt against the wall, inside ankle bone high, and just feel that position. And those are the two things that I kind of just do for everybody now. Mm. Yeah. I, I would probably get people to do drop-ins as much as I can, if they can, if they can't, then I would probably do exactly what you just said, that air chair in a bow position so that they can feel the back chain. And that's, you know, child rockers, maybe I like, you know, child rockers are a really, really basic one. And then if I can, if a person can sit in Seiza, um without any pain, then just doing Seiza lists where their chests are moving forward instead of just straight up. So it's like almost like a back chain dominant uh, Seiza lift to kind of feel the, you know, the activation of the back chain and the glutes I find is really, really helpful for a lot of people. There's a lot of good exercises that are simple that you can, you could prescribe that. I mean, uh, there's literally so many, it, it, you have to feel the part by part first. I think that is the really low hanging fruit for most people. You can learn it in 10 to 15 minutes and just having it for life, that skill of understanding how to feel each part of your body and move it independently. Sometimes you'll carry massive amounts of tension in a certain area. You don't know how to feel it. You won't know how to get rid of the tension. Whereas if you can feel it, you know, it's that area that is experiencing the tension. And if you learn how to move it, you can sometimes just shake tension out. It's yeah. literally not simple sometimes. Well, it's hard to create the proper joint angles if you don't know where your joints are in space. So learning exactly. how to articulate Yeah, basically. So like learning how to articulate your joints and putting them in the proper place. And, and like you said, even just being able to shift your pelvis or articulate your spine, you know, when you're, when you're trying to create that bow or you're trying to create that stack in your columns, it's very useful to be able to articulate and, and put yourself in those positions. People get a lot of aha moments just from that, you know, just yeah. being, being able to understand how to feel it and how simple it is. So yeah, I would do that first. Last question that we got was, uh, that we'll answer for today anyway, is are steam rooms or saunas good for health? If so, why? Um, I, I don't know too much about this. I, I like going into steam rooms. Uh, I think it stimulates lymphatic flow. I can move my body, the temperature goes up a little bit higher. I feel a little bit more elastic. I can play with that there. Um, good breathing techniques in an environment where 
your nervous system should get heightened. I like that. I can relax myself as my body's supposed to be getting heightened, right? And play with that a little bit. Um, yeah, what are your thoughts? I haven't, I'm not versed on the science as much, but I do have some experience with, like I know that being in a sauna or a steam room will increase your heat shock proteins. So it's a hormetic stress. It, it teaches your body to basically adapt to the stress. So if you do find yourself in a situation where you, for some reason, have to run in the in the beating hot sun, you'll have heat, heat shock proteins built up, and you probably won't pass out, or you're less likely to get sunstroke or something like that. So it, you know, it's it's a hormetic stress. It's something that your body can adapt to. Using it in contrast with cold is really good for circulation. Um, I don't know the effects of lymphatic flow, but I do know that like on a circulation basis, if you go from hot to cold and back and forth contrast showers, um, like I used to take a cold shower for five minutes and then be in the sauna for 10 minutes and then kind of go back and forth. And, and I felt like a million bucks every time I did that. And you'll see guys who will go in the sauna and then go out in the snow and do you know the back and forth. It actually makes it not only tolerable, but actually enjoyable. Um, so from a circulation perspective, I don't know if the sweat and everything has a detoxing effect. I'm really, really cautious of the word detox. Usually when people are like, oh, it's so good for you because it detoxes your body. It's like, I don't, like, I don't, like your body has organs to, to, to process toxins within it, right? So I don't know if sweating is going to, you know, have like an inherently detoxing effect just because you're sitting in a hot room. Um, but I do think that, you know, if, if nothing else, it's enjoyable. Like you said, it's going to give you that little more range of motion that you can articulate your joints a little bit better. You're going to be a little bit more flexible. It'll be a lot, you know, you can just, you can explore your movement a little bit better. So I don't think they're bad for your health, uh, whether or not the, you know, the, the jury's out on if they're explicitly good for your health is, you know, I, I can't say, but, uh, but I, I certainly wouldn't say that they're bad for your health and there's probably some peripheral benefits. And if you enjoy it, it's a nice relaxing way. It gets you present to the moment because the stimulus is intense. You're building heat shock proteins. Go for it. Yeah. I really have nothing else to say on that. <laughs> it's a little outside of the, of the, you know, the movement area. Right. But I did sure. say, uh, you know, ask, ask questions. Those were, those were the top I, three. I used to be a steam room connoisseur. So like, I, I know a little bit about it and I enjoy it, but in terms of the science, I haven't been kept up with it or anything like that. Yeah. I just intuitively do feel like it's detoxing and do feel great afterwards every single time. So by all means, steam away. I spent more time uh, fo uh, reading about the science of cold exposure because I got really into the Wim Hof method for a while. Um, and, you know, the circulatory benefits of that and the, you know, the different effects on the immune system. So I know more about cold exposure and I figure that if, you, hey, if, if, you know, exposure to extreme temperature in one direction is good for you, then probably exposure to extreme in, in you know, indigenous cultures have, have uh, sweat lodges for spiritual experiences and for health and all this stuff. So there, there's got to be something to it, right? Like I think they're, they're, like cultures around the world have been doing it for ages and ages and ages. And like I said, you know, with, with there's there's enough scientific validation of cold exposure. There's got to be something to heat exposure too. So, what was your experience with the cold exposure? Um, how long were you doing that for? And what was your method? Yeah. So, I mean, I did. I've done all kinds of stuff. I would go for long walks, you know, in, in the minus twenty with wearing nothing but a hat and some gloves, and I was wearing like shorts and a t-shirt. 
and shoes. Um, you know, and I would, I would expose as much as myself. I would go, you know, for like 10, 15 minute walk as much as I could bear. Um, I would do the Wim Hof breathing and then I would do ice baths for up to, I think the longest I did was probably six minutes, uh, was the longest ice bath that I took. And while I was doing that, I would also take a five minute cold shower and the, the water in my shower gets really like ice cold, like take your breath away cold. Um, and that was, uh, you know, I built up to that. I didn't just like dive right into that. It would be like, you know, I would do 30 second ice baths and then add 15 seconds every three days, but I would do it every day. Um, for a while I was just, uh, you know, again, because my, because I live in Canada and we have cold pipes here and, and the water gets really cold, I wouldn't even have to buy ice. I would just, you know, put max cold temperature water, fill, fill a tub and I would go up to my neck for as long as I could. And I would do deep controlled breaths and then, um, see if I could generate my own, um, like, you know, generate, like I would try to control the autonomic response of shivering and of trying to generate my own heat. And I would try to, you know, generate my own sense of well-being within this like extreme temperature environment. Right. And, and for me, it was, it was trying to control this fight or flight response that sort of gasping that, that I would feel. And, and I would try to control that as much as I could. And, and for me, I thought it was, you know, I, I don't, I felt pretty good. My inflammation levels were, were fairly low in terms of just like how I felt in my body, but I was eating a low inflammation diet anyway. So it's, it, you know, when you're doing so many things right in, in the rest of your lifestyle, it's hard to tell what extra benefit you're getting from a mindset perspective. I was able to stay way more relaxed uh, in stressful circumstances. So, you know, from a physiological perspective, I couldn't track it as much because I was doing so many other things right in my lifestyle. But I know from, you know, even just when something psychologically was stressful, I was able to just be like very chill and, and not have that same anxious energy about uh, things that were happening in my life. Yeah, I, I found a similar experience. I did it for a couple of years, pretty pretty on point every single day in the summer anyway, which isn't that long here. Um, as soon as the ice went away from the river, I'd be in there for, you yeah. know, 30 seconds, 45 seconds, building up to, I think the longest I went was 12 minutes, but it would usually be three or four minutes per day thing. And uh, I felt really rejuvenated afterwards, reset, rejuvenated. Uh, I did a lot of uh, breathing in there where I would try to control that heightened response because it, it gets cold here. It's Glacier water, basically, right? Yeah, for for those who are like, oh, it's the ri it's the river in the summer. It's like, well, these are glacial fed rivers. You know, these are glacial rivers. It's not, you know, it's it's not just like, just because it's summer, it's it's easier. No, like, it's it cold. Yeah. <laughs> if you haven't been in before and you're not used to like a Canadian river, it would take your breath away immediately. So staying in for three or four minutes is a pretty tough feat, and it's something you have to build up to, just like weightlifting, just like anything else um and build up safely but i did find a lot of benefit from that breathing that relaxation as i'm in there and uh a lot of times i'd be shivering afterwards for like three or four hours i don't know if that was good or not i like to experiment with my body but uh hmm. thinking back now i would i'd would be playing with that a little bit more trying to see if i could almost let that energy go you know instead of when you when that's happening you're trying to kind of hide it or not hide it but uh uh take away the sensation 
yeah. because you're shivering uncontrollably, right? So there'd be a few times when that happened. Um, I, I kind of do want to experiment a little bit more gently this summer. So going in two, three minutes, um, you know, three, four times a week. I, the most extreme version that I ever did, it was like minus, close to minus 20 out. And I went at five in the morning. We had to break the ice to get in. It was me and a couple of friends. And they'd been doing this like leading up to the winter. And I was just taking cold showers at the time. I was like, you know what? Like, I'll go in for 30 seconds. I'll try it. I ended up going in uh, neck deep, you know, with, with ice around my neck basically for two and a half-ish minutes. And it took me like all day to get out of this fight or flight response. Like my toes felt like they were going to fall off. It was not smart. <laughs> like it was not smart at all. You, you don't have to expose yourself to that level of extre like extremity, especially if you haven't built up to it. Right. So, um, you know, like, like you said, doing a gentle approach where you're doing a couple minutes and gradually increasing the, the, the level of cold or decreasing the temperature. I think that's probably a more, more wise approach to it but um one of the yeah. easier way one of the easier things to do is just to stick your head into the river like um or cold water that yeah. is a quick reset you don't have to get completely wet and it's it's a little bit more controllable so i start to do that pretty much there's the ice is completely over the river right now but as soon as it melts enough i'll put my head in for 30 seconds or so and do that once twice a day yeah wim hof has uh different exercises where you put your face in a bowl of ice water and you put your hand or your foot, if, especially if you have like low circulation in your hands or your extremities, you know, submersion of your, your, your limbs or your hands or your feet can, can help that circulation in his theory anyway. And yeah, I, I haven't experimented with that. It's funny because I, I frequently have cold hands, which I, which I didn't really ever have i never had poor circulation in my hands but actually after doing a lot of the cold exposure i found my extremities started to get cold really really quick so i don't know if there's a, an adaptation thing or if it's a change in other again it's it's hard to pinpoint what the cause is if you're changing like when you're testing these things you have to make sure it's the only variable in your lifestyle that you're changing because i would i like frequently when i've done you know, lifestyle changes, I would lifestyle overhaul, I would change, you know, I would do cold exposure, and I would change my diet, and I would get on a different sleep schedule, and I would cut out caffeine, I would do all these different things. And it was like, well, which one is providing the result? Well, probably all of them. But you can't really pinpoint what's affecting you the most, if you're changing everything at once, if you want to actually get a better sense of how something impacts you, I would recommend doing one thing at a time. And, you know, being honest and qualitative and quantitative about the the changes that you're feeling yeah no i um i've done a lot of kind of extreme tests on my own body in my life and a lot of them did have too many variables to be sure that you know that was the case what i thought mm -hmm. was changing things like you know um cold water exposure at the same time as running long distances and doing things like that it's like what is actually making me more healthy i'm not sure right so um, yeah i'm gonna go back to the cold water stuff yeah two minutes a day, nothing too extreme, just work on the breath and look at it that way now. Well, personally, I just like it. Like I just, I just feel, I would do it um, before bed and I find um, there is one thing in terms of sleep quality. If your core body temperature is a little bit lower, you do tend to sleep better. Um, that, so, so I found that even just doing my, you know, my, I would do like a three to five minute ice bath 
before bed and my sleep quality skyrocketed. I was able to relax into my, plus also the contrast of like freezing ice bath to warm blankets in your bed is so, so nice. It just immediately cozies you up and relaxes you, right? So I found that my sleep quality was way better. But anyways, guys, that's episode 28 of The Art of Move. Um, if you have specific questions that you want answered, please watch the live vi uh, versions of these podcast episodes on nofilter.net. We always have at least one episode scheduled that you can register for. Um, and we try to do, you know, at least between one to three of these a week because we love it. You know, we're, we're, I, like I mentioned the other day, we, we have over 33 hours now of podcast content just because we enjoy talking. <laughs> we And it's, uh, you know, so so if you want to be part of the conversation, come to nofilter.net. If you want to ask us questions specifically, you can find Dr. Will at The Art of Move on Instagram. You can find me at The Body Moves. Um, and yeah, just reach out. We're always willing to connect with anyone who wants to chat. If you want to be a part of the podcast, come join us. We'll see you next time. Have a good one, guys.